For me, uh, it's really important that we are upholding and, you know, raising these oral traditions and these stories. It's important that the protocols, these traditions are upheld and are held equally to, you know, science, the science that we're using behind GPR. Based out of the University of the Fraser Valley on unceded traditional lands of the Stolo people, we are the Community Health and Social Innovation Hub, or CHASI for short. We support the social, mental, emotional, physical, and economic health of those living in our communities by bringing together experts from across disciplines. Those experts have some incredible stories and insights. To share those with the communities we serve, we bring you the Chassis Cast, a monthly program where we drill down on a current topic and chat about how it impacts our lives. It is my pleasure to introduce uh, Dr. Sarah Bollier. Uh, Sarah, you're a long-standing member of the UFE community. We were fortunate to uh, be able to talk with you on a previous uh, podcast. I'm thrilled you're a colleague of mine in the School of Culture, Media, and Society. And uh, welcome again to ChassisCast. Thank you. I'm just as thrilled to be here. Well, we're never going to let you go now. Um, so hoping today you, you're involved in so many different projects uh, in the community. That's one of the things I think that you and I uh, bond over is sort of that responsiveness to, to communities. And um, I wondered if maybe we could talk a little bit about how you got into uh, GPR work in particular. When I was in an, my undergraduate studies, uh, it was during the time of when the Truth and Reconciliation Commission was interviewing uh, witnesses from the IRS system, from the Indian residential schools. And one of my classmates that I had done a number of directed studies with in social cultural anthropology, uh, her father was interviewed. And within a couple of weeks of that interview, he had committed suicide. And that really impacted me at the time. Obviously, it had a greater impact on her, but it really drove where I decided to go with my work after that. So when I applied for graduate school, I had uh, wanted to work with Dr. Eldon Yellowhorn at Simon Fraser University. Uh, he was the first Indigenous archaeologist to hold a PhD here in Canada. He was also working on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission at the time with missing children. Uh, so I began, or I started with an interview with him, and when he asked what my research interests were, of course, I'd said I'd wanted to work with missing children. Uh, and there was no response from him at the time. I'm sure having a newly minted undergraduate student come into the fold wanting to work, do such important work was uh, rather risky. Uh, and so he had offered me a, this a project on what he thought at the time was a veteran cemetery, but it ended up being a prisoner of war cemetery in Morrissey. So I began doing uh, ground-penetrating radar work, or GPR, uh, when I was looking into this particular cemetery, there were four uh, prisoner of war burials there, uh, but we could see depressions in the ground, and we knew that there were potentially other burials on site. And after doing this work, I knew that I wanted to expand the research from the cemetery and work in the actual internment camp proper. But that site was the size of a small town. The government had taken over a small mining town. There were six streets and uh, four avenues. And to do ground penetrating radar work on a site of that uh, size would be extremely cost prohibitive especially for an undergraduate student. So at the time I was working with the Canadian First World War Internment Recognition Fund, 
and they had purchased a ground penetrating radar for my research and also paid for me uh, to take the training necessary to conduct the research itself. So that's how I got into using ground penetrating radar within, um, you know, looking for building footprints, but also working within cemeteries and began working in traditional cemeteries and historic cemeteries around the Fernie area and expanding to the Fraser Valley, working with different cities and indigenous communities as well. And from there began working on uh, Indian residential school sites. Uh, can you tell me a bit more about what it is? I get asked that a lot when I'm bragging about you and, and the work that you do and, and trying to explain it. Can you t just talk about what it is? It's, it's essentially a radar. Um, it can either be on a, you know, a tow system. Most often people associate them with a lawnmower configuration. But essentially what it does, they have different frequencies from 100 megahertz you know, hertz to 900 megahertz. And what you're doing is em emitting an electromagnetic pulse into the ground. And when you do this, you're taking these measurements of the velocity um, to measure the distance of this anomaly or this object that may be below the surface. And so when you pass a, a GPR, you know, across the surface and you take these regularly spaced acquisitions, you essentially get a vertical slice or a vertical picture of, or an image of the vertical slice of the ground beneath you. And so, and then I presume like anything, you analyze that, you have, you know, sort of how do you sort of make sense of those images to someone? Because I think one of the things that we talk lots about in Chassis is, you know, we do research, but how do we make it meaningful to those who have asked us to do the work um, or uh, engagement? So, you know, how... How do you take those images and make sense of them for people that are trying to understand them? It's, it's interesting because we do have a screen uh, attached to or a computer that's attached to the machine while we're working on site. So we can see, you know, exactly uh, what's being picked up below the surface. But a lot of the stuff needs to be um, analyzed and interpreted uh, in the lab outside of the field. One of the common things that people think is that you're able to see a body beneath the surface or that you're able to see an actual artifact. And that's not what we're reading. We're actually reading um, hyperbolic responses or a bunch of black squiggly lines is how most people tend to associate it. Uh, but when you've been doing the work long enough, these squiggly lines all have different signatures. And the signatures for a burial are very different than the signature for a building footprint uh, when you're working construction, often you're looking for voids uh, in roadways, you're looking for rebar, uh, you're looking to see the depth of an ice sheet, um, for, you know, for roads up north and whatnot. With burials, it's a very different, a grave shaft has a very different uh, image or signature that we're looking for. And what we typically have done is used traditional um, cemeteries where we know that there are burials and have compared these signatures to more clandestine sites to be able to analyze the data. What does that look like when you're working in various communities to bring this sort of technology, this equipment in? Um, and I know you're so attentive to sort of working alongside community. Can you talk a little bit about how that works in terms of community protocols? When the news in Kamloops broke last year, one of the things that was, um, you know, really at the forefront was this notion that we had used science. 
for some reason, whatever reason, with uh, non-Indigenous Canadians from Turtle Island, the idea that we are, you know, are able to name names of the children or have actual numbers of the children that uh, went missing means more than the actual stories, the oral histories um, that come from uh, the Indigenous communities that have been talking about this for generations. And for me, uh, it's really important that we are upholding and, you know, raising these oral traditions and these stories. It's important that the protocols, these traditions are upheld and are held equally to, you know, science, the science that we're using behind GPR. The Mi'kmaq um, an Indigenous community from out east have a saying or a term called two-eyed seeing. And that's using one eye um, to see the world through the lens of Indigenous values and knowledge systems and to use the other eye um, to see the world through Western values and knowledge systems, but then to use both eyes together for the betterment of society. In Tecamlips, they have a similar saying. It's called walking on two legs, and it's upholding Western laws and values uh, but also upholding Tisheshwetmik laws and values through oral histories and songs. And so for me, it's important that we're merging both of these. And when you're brought into a community, because of the colonial ways that research has been done in the past, um, where research has been conducted on communities, communities have been essentially objectified, the results have not been shared with communities, uh, they have not been to the benefit of communities, um, often secondary data has been used without the knowledge of Indigenous communities or without their permission, importantly. Um, and because of these reasons, there is a lot of mistrust. Now, uh, with indigenization, communities are conducting the work themselves. They are asking the questions that are relevant to their communities. They're asking the questions that benefit their communities. So it's not for an outside researcher to come in and say, you know, hey, this is a question that I would like answered. So it's important to be invited in to a community to conduct research that is important to them. Uh, and for me, that means as an outsider that everything from um, conducting a survey to preparing a report to the interpretation of the results to the review of the report needs to be uh, run by the community itself. It's not for me, for instance, to present the data. It's not for me to uh, speak on behalf of the community. The data is owned by the community. Everything is centered around, heart-centered around the community itself. I am working with and for an Indigenous community when I'm invited in, uh, but it's not me doing this research for the interest of myself to publish um, or, or for any other reason than to support a community. It's interesting. Um, I, I find um, we run into a lot of, um, you know, mistrust in communities. I often run it into, in my work, it has more to do with the university structure. Um, I would suggest with a lot of the work that you do, it has to be, it's much bigger than that. It's, it's not, it's the university is one representation of sort of colonial structures. So it's, it's much bigger. I if you can talk a bit about how you sort of navigated that, your engagement with community. I know you spend a lot more time in community than just coming in and doing the work because you honor that. Can you talk a bit about what that looks like? Absolutely. The, 
the trust building within a community is not something that happens overnight. It can take months or year, years to um, garner the trust from a community when you're working with them. Uh, part of it for me is, is reputation and being recommended by one community to another community for the work that I've done. Importantly, it's about honoring protocols. Uh, cultural protocols take place before, during, and after any survey that I conduct. Uh, as an outsider, there are, you know, 200 Indigenous communities in BC alone. There's 30 language groups, six dialects. It's about not broad sweeping, uh, which is something that sometimes a lot of outsiders do is assuming that what you do in one community uh, is something that you, a template that you can then use in another community. For instance, with protocols in one community, I won't get into them because every community is different, of course, but uh, you may use ochre. Um, you would put it on your temples and your forearms when you're in a, working in a cemetery situation. And that would be um, so that um, the, the ancestors don't accidentally bump into you and uh, make you sick by accident. However, using ochre within another community is something that only men would wear. And so knowing the differences between this is really important. Um, presenting tobacco, uh, you know, for honoring and, and gift giving and sweetgrass. Uh, cleansing yourself with rose water is, is really important. I've been asked to clean my equipment when I leave so that I don't get sick. Uh, calling your name back from a site is a, another really important one um, to make sure that you don't leave, you know, a part of yourself behind. And so I think it's important to be humble and to acknowledge what we don't know and to not presume that we know everything about indigenous, every Indigenous community that you're working with, uh, but also to, to be vocal about the fact that you are wanting to learn and to be present and to be part of it and to participate in a uh, respectful way and that um, you are invested in doing the work in uh, the best way possible. How can we as universities do that better so that our students get a bit of a sense that they can't get unless they're out there in the field with you or others doing, uh, doing like work? Um, how can we do that? We, you know, we show movies and we have speakers. Uh, have you thought about ways that you could, you'd love to see that interface become stronger and more creative? You know, we, we talk about decolonizing where, um, you know, we're dismantling these aspects of the structures of colonialism within, you know, our teaching and learning, our, the education system as well. It's about going further with indigenizing, which is, we're more there today than we certainly were, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago. But with indigenizing, it's really about um, raising up Indigenous knowledge systems, Indigenous worldviews, feelings, thought systems, uh, the lenses and perspectives. It's about giving voice to. Um, so I think the indigenizing aspect is really important to how we disseminate this information within the classroom. And also, you know, for really basic things like our land acknowledgements. It's not just about, um, you know, spewing out a, a very generic statement because it's an obligatory thing to do. I, for instance, talk about that in the classroom. What does it actually mean? Why are we giving a land acknowledgement? Uh, and one of the things I actually want to do within my classroom is 
um, have students write their own and make it personal so that they're actually investing in it and understanding why we do things like that. I think it's about bringing in that personal investment with students and making connections um, from their own lived experience on um, how this can be done, what they knew before, what they're learning now, how that can be applied, you know, in, in the future to what they're doing, working with communities and in their day-to-day lives. I, I'm intrigued by um, when our students have gone to work with you. It's, I'm always struck that we can't send enough because you don't need as many as. So, but the nice thing about it is it doesn't feel voyeuristic because they're busy. They're, they're there to do work. Um, I wonder if you might talk about you, you know, how else can we bring more students into communities, whatever communities they are, uh, to have experiences and yet not ensure that we're not, you know, entering that space of more voyeuristic tendencies. I think the amazing thing about a teaching university like the University of the Fraser Valley is that we have this experiential learning model so that you're taking more than what you're, you're, you're learning from a book or from a lecture or from a video and you're actually getting out into the field and applying what you're learning. So when you're working within communities, you have these aha moments. You've read about it, um, you've watched it, you've heard it on the news, but you're actually listening, for instance, when we're working um, within uh, you know, a residential school survey site, you're listening to survivors who are coming on site and saying, have you looked here? This is a story from my mother. This is a story from my grandparent. This is how I have been affected by this. And students hearing this firsthand makes, it, it's, it's, makes a huge difference than just reading it and being removed from the actual situation. It brings an emotional aspect to it. It brings investment. Um, where students actually want to participate in affecting change, and I think that is important. One of the projects that we're involving students in is the Haida Gwaii project, and you mentioned earlier that you know you're, it's by reputation that you get connected, and that's certainly how you were asked to support the work in Haida Gwaii, and 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 bringing that through Chassis, we're able to have a lot of, a number of uh, students involved in in that as well. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of. You know, how do you approach an invitation like that uh, in a community such as Haida Gwaii? It's a privilege to be working in Haida Gwaii. It's a privilege to be invited to help support uh, the research in Haida Gwaii. So I think I could say that we're all very excited to be a part of this project. It's fascinating. It's a, a commemorative memorial wall the size of a basketball court. So it's very large. What's amazing about this particular research is that it's acknowledging um, all of the colonial issues that have taken place within Haida Gwaii uh, from the time of contact uh, with the smallpox epidemic that wiped out the majority of the community from the flooding that happened. Uh, so where you know families were lost to sea to the Indian residential schools, the 60s scoop, and what's beautiful about this project is that um, there's going to be a portion of the wall that talks about where they see themselves going as a community into the future. It's going to be written in Haida and translated into French and English, which is, uh, you know, another great way of indigenizing and, and decolonizing as well. Uh, so it's a privilege to be a part of this work and to be invited 
into it and to be able to use um, the knowledge that w I have from working on other sites and be able to uh, take that experience and contribute and, and support the community to be able to bring in research assistants and students from from Chassis um, and other faculty members to work on this project is incredible as well because it gives us all the opportunity to participate in a way of supporting a community and and participating in reconciliation. One of the things that struck me when the community came was their incredible commitment to sort of um, digital memory, ensuring that they honor stories and have those stories maintained in a way that, that the voices can continue to be heard. I wonder if you might be able to talk a little bit about that role of visual representations merged with sort of the archival research that, you know, you've done on other projects, um, because that was so central to their vision. One thing that's happening within all communities right now is this, this race to uh, interview survivors. And the survivors are elderly. Uh, many are, are dying off as we speak, and uh, there is a race to make sure that these stories are told and that they are held in perpetuity um, so that not only the research can continue, but so that this these histories, these family histories, these stories can be told and retold. Uh, so the digital aspect is, is a really beautiful way of being able to not only commemorate it, um, but to make sure that... Um, the research can continue and reconciliation can happen, but also so that um, families can heal. So having a digital aspect where um, people can walk up to a monument um, and not only read what's on the monument, but listen to the stories of or see pictures of really places the individual back into the story and takes it away from uh, you know, us being removed from it and being almost within the story itself, understanding the true effects of it. You talk in the work uh, and have been so attentive around sort of cultural monitors, um, cultural supports in terms of the heavy work, certainly seen it with our students as they um, understand the, uh, the moment uh, in terms of involvement in this project. Can you talk a bit about how you, how you work with communities to ensure, um, and to, you know, ensure that the supports are available to community members and certainly as well, recognizing that as researchers come in, um, they need support as well. Support is so important when you're working in, uh, any area of, of conflict. When you're working with victims of any type of atrocity, um, this type of memory work triggers. It's re-triggering, it's re-traumatizing, um, it's, you know, dredging everything up from the past. It's important for the work to be done, but the support needs to be there for the community. The beautiful thing about um, the IRS work that's being done is that the mental health supports are there on site at every step of the way. Um, and this is important because every individual is going to be triggered in some way by, by bringing up these memories of, of ancestors, of family members. It's also just as important for the researchers that work, are working on, on site um, 
it's very traumatic work when you're looking for missing children. Um, and um, obviously not in the same way as it would be for the the affected community, but it's important for these supports to be there for students and for all the researchers to be able to talk to somebody. Um, and this is where uh, within the Indigenous community um, or communities, the, the ceremonies are healing. When we were working um, with the radar on site, we would have cleansing ceremonies uh, quite often um, to, you know, remove any negativity from us, to make sure that um, the ancestors uh, were staying on site and not following you uh, when you when you left the site. Uh, so cleansing ceremonies uh, are are very important and, and part of the ceremonial protocols. And I think all the students that I've worked with on site have, have definitely felt uh, the the energy cleanse and and shift uh, when elders have have requested that we take part in these. And it's a privilege to take part in them. So is that, how do you take care of you? You do a lot of heavy work so as and responsible, I would argue, as well for students that, you know, are there. So um, what do you find most, most helpful as you navigate, you know, so many of the projects that you engage in? For me, I think the work is so important to tell the story, bring these stories to light, um, give voice to help marginalized communities feel like they've been heard finally. And for me, that is the cleansing part, being able to be part of the reconciliatory process, to be part of uh, decolonizing academe, to be part of indigenizing um, our pedagogy and where we are today, playing a very small role in that, for me, is what makes all of this or what makes me able to get up every morning and do it again tomorrow. So on that note, I wanted to shift gears a little bit because there was something I had wanted to ask you the last time we spoke and I didn't have a chance. And that was about the book chapter that you wrote uh, and that journey that you, uh, with our colleagues at Winter Baines. Um, and I wonder if you could talk a little bit, bit about that. Absolutely. It's, I think my investment in indigenizing and decolonizing uh, although I am an outsider coming into Indigenous communities here, um, I've realized my own family history has very much been affected by a colonial history. Um, and it wasn't really until my undergraduate studies, when I was learning about indentured servitude and indentured labor, that I went back to my father and said, isn't this what happened to my great-great-grandfather? And uh, because it had never actually been expressed in those words before it. And so I was asked as a faculty associate in SASE to write a chapter on my family history. And um, my ethnic background comes from the Middle East. Um, and my great-great-grandfather was traveling the Silk Road, Trunk Road into India. Uh, and when there, somehow we end up in East Africa, several generations in East Africa. So I sat down to write this chapter and I feel like growing up, we listen to the stories that our parents share, but we don't truly listen to them. So when Dr. Baines had asked me to write the chapter, I thought, oh, this is an easy, quick one. I'll, you know, bang it out in, in a couple days and realized I actually didn't know the full stories and had to sit down with my father and ask many, many questions. But yes, the, the story was my great, great grandfather, 
was called into town one day to uh, because he had a debt he hadn't paid and disappeared. And from there, several weeks later, uh, the family receives a postcard from Bombay. And the postcard states that he is on a ship to Africa. And once, if he's able to pay off this debt, he will be able to return home. And these were, you know, a debt that should never have been incurred. It was these exorbitant interest rates, part of a colonial system in, in British India at the time. Uh, so he left his entire family behind. And... Um, our ancestry then takes up in, in Kenya, in East Africa. So for me, working with marginalized communities, indigenous communities, is because I feel like I do share um, this colonial history of, of displacement and, and understand it from another part of the world um, where I understand how generations have been, how generations of my family have been affected by uh, colonialism itself and where we are today and, and how we got here. That's great. We'll make sure we put a link to that in the show notes uh, of the podcast as well. Thank so, you. Yeah, I encourage people to have a look. Well, thank you very much for taking the time. It's always such a pleasure and I'll look forward to us doing this again at some point, perhaps, and certainly uh, look forward to continuing our work together. Absolutely. I feel the same. Thank you, Martha. Martha.